Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in the book of 1 John, little book in the New Testament. But if you're fleet of finger, maybe you can find it. 1 John in the New Testament, kind of towards the end. And we're going to be doing a series there. So if you do like Bible markers or something, maybe go ahead and put a marker there. We're going to be there for the next several weeks. As we uh, think about a concept that is really important uh, and kind of more important maybe than we give it credit for, which is our confidence in the Lord or, or, or how sure we are in the things that we say uh, we think or believe. So 1 John chapter 1, if you have a copy of the Bible, if not, uh, please don't worry. We're going to have those words on the screen. We'd love for you to have a Bible and a readable English translation uh, on your way out. So I'm kind of a big guy, getting bigger every day. Uh, and in college, we did this thing where we went uh, spelunking. We went through a cave. And it was part of like another, sort of like a leadershipy type weekend. You know, you have like your ropes courses and your trust falls or whatever. And then there was like, oh, but there's also this cave we could go tour. So it wasn't like a national park concrete and like, you know, electric light kind of cave tour. It was more like a hole in the ground with a guy who knows how to get through it cave tour. And we went through and it was really cool. I mean, there was a lot of really impressive things to see, but it was very much crawling and kind of worming your way through, maybe literally worming your way through uh, this cave. And there was one part, it's the only part I remember with a lot of clarity, where it was like a, a little tunnel. And it's maybe only 10 or 15 feet long, uh, but it felt much longer. But it was the smaller tunnel. And so to get through, I had to kind of hold my shoulders at an angle so that I could get, you know, trim enough to be able to go through this tunnel. And you had to crawl and you're under the, you know, weight of the world through this dark tunnel and you got your little headlight or somebody, you know, at either end's got some light on there. But another thing that made it hard was that there was water going through about 30% of the hole. So you had to kind of keep your head turned so that you could keep breathing as you were going through the tunnel. Not a lot of fun, right? Uh, but I remember it fondly. And the reason I remember it fondly is I actually didn't have any fear going through that tunnel. Uh, and the reason I didn't have any fear was, you know, maybe like 40% the like stupidity of youth, you know, but about 60% of it was because of the guide. The guy that we were following was actually like my size. We had a similar kind of build and a similar height. And so the fact that he had already gone through meant that it may be crazy and it may be a little uncomfortable and it may be slightly difficult, but it was eminently possible to get through this tunnel. Like that, that small, you know, enclosure that you're trying to make your way through and you're breathing at an angle to kind of work your way out again, back into the light, back into the beauty, like ended by this beautiful stream with trees all around. I mean, it was this idyllic kind of finish line, but to get through, I could trust because the guide had gone through that it was possible. And so it went from an experience that was some sort of like nightmare experience <laughs> to an experience that was actually like kind of fun. Like you could enjoy what was happening. Now, the reason I bring that up is because when you think about what we think as a church, and if you're new here, maybe you don't really know what Christianity like claims, but most of the people in the room, I think, either have heard of Christianity before or already considered themselves Christians. And, and if you have kind of in your head a concept of what Christianity is, then you know that there are times where going through Christianity, like continuing in your life 
saying that what Christians believe is true feels like worming your way through that little tunnel. Because you've got a culture that scoffs at a lot of our ideas. You've got a culture that looks at what we're saying and what we think is true and says, you think that at the other end of that tunnel there is something beautiful? You think that you can actually believe that there's, there's this God that has made this world, that he made it good but that it fell, and that what you see around you is evident of like intentional design? We have people in our culture, and I think a lot of people that believe that God exists, but to then say that, that who this God is has like revealed himself and that we can verify that through, through trust in this word that we have, this Bible that we have, there's just a lot of scoffing that takes place. So you have this pressure from the outside, but you also got this pressure from the inside. I mean, we, we constantly have things that go against Christianity that we want that we want to be true, but that we also want to experience. And we can call them sins, but like in the moment, they don't feel like that. They feel like very reasonable things that we might also bring into our life to enjoy with or maybe in spite of our, our Christianity. And so there's a, a conflict in your heart about, do I even want to go through this? Like, do I really want there to be this God? And then, of course, you know, we believe that there's a, an enemy there's an accuser and that the accuser is working against your faith in this God that you say that you believe in. And, and when 1 John was written, the apostle John was writing two churches to try and give them sort of a, a little bit of a slap, like a little bit of a, hey, hey, wake up kind of slap and bring them back to what they knew to be true and show them again just how stable, just how reliable and just how attractive what they had claimed to believe really is. And that's what I want us to get back to as a church. I want us to be able to say with unshakable confidence that we do believe the things that we do. If you're going to jump, if you're going to go through the tunnel, if, you, if you're going to actually go through life believing this stuff, trying to see the world change in these ways, teaching this to your children, Oh my gosh, now that I have kids, every time that I get to a real sincere doubt about Christianity and have just that moment of imagining my life if I believed something different or had a different worldview, part of what checks me, especially if that's motivated by a desire to sin, part of what checks me is the idea of handing that idea to my children. Are you sure that you're sure about what you say you believe? So sure that you would hand it to your babies. Man, we need to have an unshakable confidence. And 1 John has it. 1 John has it to give, and that's what I want us to study. There's a couple of things that he says he has in 1 John, or reasons that he's written 1 John. And the first is, the one that we're going to kind of talk about today, is that we might have complete joy. In John, uh, 1 John 1, verse 4, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, so having a confidence, having an assurance is going to lead to Joy, you're going to actually be able to access the joy that God's promised through Jesus. He's also written so that we won't sin. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But he's writing that you may not 
sin. So he's going to take into account was a very real factor, your desire for sin or the effects of sins that you've committed on your assurance or your faith, your, your understanding of who God is and your belief about who God is. Very interesting. We'll spend some time on that. He is writing so that we can be firm even when things that were false. Well, let's be clear. It's not like there's the church and then there's all these kind of secular humanist people. Yes, our culture has secular humanist people, but we have a lot of people in our culture, especially in our valley, who still have a belief in God, but it's not a belief in a Christian God. Okay. Well, what do we do with that? Lastly, he says that he wants us to be sure that we're his. So in chapter 5, which is the last part of 1 John, he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, if you have trust in Christ, it doesn't matter if your trust in Christ is great and you go through life really happy and confident or your trust in Christ is small and you go through life sweating. If your trust is in Christ, Christ will save you either way. But I know which one I'd rather have. You know, like I know which life I'd rather live. You can make it through the cave either way. He can get you through it. But if you trust him, that is a much more pleasurable experience. So that's, that's what I want us to do. That's what I want us to see. And we're going to start in the first four verses of the book. So John 1, 1 through 4 says, That which was from the beginning. Now, this guy, John, every time he starts one of these letters, it just blows your mind. And it takes a minute. And you're like, what am I reading? Because it's a little bit poetic. But once you get into it and then come back to these first parts, they're some of the most sweet parts of all of Scripture. So take a second, if this feels like a little bit of a whiplash, what are we reading? Take a second, give it to him, and then come back. All right, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest or, or made to appear to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. For us to be able to have a real confidence in what God's written, I think the first thing we need is a confidence in our guides. That's what John does here. He, he gives you truth claims, but he bases those truth claims on his own testimony as an eyewitness, right? Like that's what we just read. I know there's some poetic stuff and some that witches and eternal lives and stuff, but he's saying, hey, I was there, I saw, I heard, and I touched this thing. He's claiming to be a witness of these things. And that's what we're going to start with. We're going to start with a confidence that comes from a trust in our guides. The guy that's written this letter is a guy named John. He was the brother of a guy named James. He was um, a disciple of Jesus that spent just about every second with Jesus. And you say, okay, well, did John really write the book of 1 John? Or did somebody later write the book of 1 John and claim that John wrote it? Great question. Listen, in just Christianity, we've been going through and talking about a lot of different stuff, but one of the things we talked about was how you can trust in the reliability of the Bible. If you're willing to do homework, you can, what do I mean by external and internal evidence? By external, I mean people that were not John or not in the letter writing about the letter. We have lots of different things that tell us from early, early, early on that this guy, John, wrote this letter. That's called external evidence. 
We have internal evidence, meaning that if you just take this book of John and read it and try to understand from it, are there any clues that would give it away that make us say, well, this was actually written in the 500s, not in the 50s? Is there any clues that would make us say, well, this couldn't have been written by John because... Or if we just study this literarily, the the person who wrote the fourth gospel did not write this letter. Well, no. The more you dig in, the more consistency we find. And one guy, president of seminary, a guy named Dan Aiken, Danny Aiken, says, evidence both internal and external favors the view that the apostle John is the author of the three letters Christian tradition has attributed to him. That's first, second, and third John. The writing style is so close to that of the fourth gospel or the gospel of John that common authorship is clearly the best position to affirm. Now, again, that's a little bit boring. I understand that people don't go, amen, you know, when you finish talking about external and internal evidence, but it's important stuff. And if you're willing to do that homework, you can see that whatever your qualms are about the reliability of scripture, there's a PhD dissertation or 10 on that topic that will give you confidence in what we have seen and what we have read. So, This book, written by a guy who spent time with Jesus, spent years with Jesus, almost every minute of the night and day. There's times where Jesus goes off by himself to pray. There's times where Jesus sends the disciples ahead. There's times where Jesus sends the disciples out to be his witnesses in these different towns before he gets there. So there's there's minutes where he's not with Jesus. But for a three-year period, just about every minute, night and day, he was with this cat, Jesus. And as he sees this guy, he realizes that he's not just a guy. And he's not just a guy who does miracles. All the phrases that we just heard in these first four, first four verses are telling. John doesn't just say a man or a man from Bethlehem or a man from Nazareth, he says. That which was from the beginning. He says the word of life, the life, the eternal life. With the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and through him, the Father. He's talking about something else. He saw in Jesus something else. And it doesn't mean that John was a genius in order to like discern who this Jesus really is. It means that Jesus was capable of describing who he really is to his disciples. That the word works. That he was able to speak about who he was. He was able to show these people who he was. And that at some point they understood that this was not just a moral teacher giving out moral teaching. That this was actually something totally different. And so John goes from being somebody that's like a teaching critic. That we have to try and understand. Did he understand well the morality of these teachings? Was he a philosopher capable of parsing out who Jesus really was and what Jesus really said? Well, I don't know. If you read John and you read the Gospels of John, I think he was pretty much a genius. But he doesn't have to be to do what we need him to do as a, as a representative, as, a, as somebody who can give testimony. Because all he has to be is just a representative of humanity standing before this thing, whatever this thing is. And he understands, having been with Jesus, that Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't less than a man. We talk about him having a twin nature. But he didn't begin with Mary. He was when everything else, angels, worlds, spiritual and physical, were made. Before all was, before everything began, he was. To start his gospel, John says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. You don't have to be an English major, 
But do you see the tenses that are taking place there? How do you was at the beginning? You can't was at the beginning because it's the beginning. You can't say he was running at the beginning of the race. Well, no, that was the beginning of the race. How were you running before the beginning of the race? You were just running. No, he was existing before beginning began. How does that happen? Well, what he's saying is that he is not a creature, but the creator. That who this Jesus is has slipped over the line. He's not like you and me. You and I are what's called dependent. We're we're downstream of whatever it is that is independent. We're creatures, but he's the creator. Being the creator, he's the fountain of existence. He's the fountain of life. And we're downstream. We're the dependent ones. We have to, to start somewhere, and we start with him giving us life. So when he talks about this Jesus, he describes him as the life, and he describes him as the eternal life, and he describes him as that which was from the beginning. We start to understand when he's talking about Jesus being God. But we also understand when he says that Jesus is the life, he means that living like Jesus is to to be with Jesus is to really be living. Have you ever heard like that kind of phrasing where you talk about somebody's really living? Man, this is living. They're they're really living. Now, usually when we say that, we mean some sort of a Vegas margarita kind of like living and and like hard living. And we all kind of say that with maybe a little bit of a wink or a little bit of an asterisk. And maybe if we're foolish, maybe a lot of longing. But but usually when we say living like that, we know that that's not always really living, just having a lot of pleasure. But we all desire to have our life be like living. I think you know, though, I hope, I hope you know, that really to be living is to have a life with love in it. Maybe you experience this. You're single, you move to a new city. Fresh out of college or grad school or whatever, and you got your job and your job's in this new town. So you move to the new town, you show up, you're happy, you're wealthy-ish. You don't know, you got a lot of student debt. But you're, you're trying to figure out life in this new city and you don't know a lot of people. That's life. But then you get a puppy. You do what everybody does. You get a pet. You find this little pet and you bring him home and the puppy's great. And the puppy's awful. And the puppy's wonderful, but the puppy's hard. And you have love in your life. And you realize that though it's very difficult and it's hard to go out of town now, you have something that has made your life better. Because love started to happen in your life. Now, it's kind of a low form of love. And maybe you start to, you know... Have love in other places too. You've been in the town long enough that you start making good friends. Listen, coming to a church is a great way to get to just meet people. It's kind of hard to do in a new town. But you start meeting people, you start having friends, and as those friendships start to really deepen, then you start having more love in your life. And maybe you continue with that kind of a lifestyle of having really deep, close friendships, but maybe a lot of people will will get married. You find one person in particular and you kind of dump in with that person. And that commitment and that sort of isolation-ish and that, that, that real jump has led to an increase of, of love in your life. And it's great and it's hard. And it's wonderful, but it's exclusive. And there's up and down to it. But if you're like me, I just recently found out that you can turn your Apple TV to have your pictures on it. So that when you're done watching a thing, instead of like a, you know, drone shot of a city or something, it'll just start pulling up old pictures. 
Well, this morning, I wasn't really ready for it. We just started the thing. And Rachel wasn't there. She had gone to take her mom to the airport. But like this, these pictures just start coming up. And Sunday mornings are already kind of like, okay, you know, getting ready, trying to get excited about Sunday morning. And then these pictures just start showing of like Rachel from our first years in marriage. Rachel holding like our babies when they were really little babies. And it's just like, oh, oh you know, <laughs> cancel everything I'm saying right here. You know, like it was just this emotional moment because, yeah, you have that love that increases in your world. Maybe you get to have kids. You have that, that increase. What I mean is when we say living, we don't just mean pleasure. We don't just mean more scope for you to go out and make what you want to happen, happen. When we say living, we mean having love in your life. And it doesn't have to look like these traditional relationships. Having a wife and having kids. The Bible has giant categories for people that are going to be single and have real, meaningful, loving, deep relationships. But whatever those relationships are, I'm talking about giving love to your life means that you give life to your life. And so when John talks about Jesus as the life, he doesn't just mean you're like escape hatch to get out of death. He means the one who is love, the one who is life, the one who's the original light that all these other beautiful relationships you have are just mirrors for. When he talks about Jesus, he talks about bringing you to something that really is life. This past week, I finally turned a corner. I finished a thing I've been working for for a couple of years. It was a really hard thing. And finishing, I thought was going to feel great. And then I finished and it didn't feel that great. (laughs) I was fine. You know, and and maybe a little bit of that was just being burned out and not sleeping or whatever. But, But just, you know, you finish this line and you kind of expect it to be like something. And it was something, but it wasn't everything. And it it was good, but it wasn't much. And I was trying to figure out why it wasn't much, and I realized that what I was comparing it to was so much more. What I was comparing it to was like this. I was comparing it to like good conversations. I was comparing it to like singing here with these cats. You know, they're, they're singing this stuff about Jesus, and you're all singing it together, and there's these moments where you just, it's like heaven opens up. When you're finding God in his word, okay, today, go to John 1. We got 1 John 1 that we're in today, but go to John 1 and just read that first like set of 20 verses. See, if you know the Lord, see if you're reading those verses, and maybe it's just confusing, and I'm sorry, but, but if you're able to kind of figure out what's happening there and start to see what it's saying there, if you don't have a moment, <laughs> man, he is... The life, when, when we sing to him, when we see him in his word, when we finally start to believe that he's forgiven us, when you walk around and you see a flower and you understand that like heaven is real, <laughs> when, when you see the mountains, when you see, when you see the kind of beauty that helps you to sing that, there's an old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That was my experience this week. I had a thing that I thought was going to be great. I was foolish enough to think it was going to be like great, great. But the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He is the life. So so have you experienced that kind of life, that kind of living, that kind of upgrade? We're not talking about religion here, and we're not talking about theology. We're not even talking about obedience. We're talking about do you know him? 
Do you know this kind of love? Because when John experienced Jesus, he wasn't just experiencing a guy. He understood that, that that when he was with this guy, he wasn't just around some rabbi or prophet, that he was around somebody who wasn't just casting out demons and healing blind people. He wasn't even just breaking up funerals by raising dead people to life. He wasn't even just doing those extreme miracles. See, what, what John and all these other disciples finally started to understand is that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was something more. When, when John says that Jesus is the life, there was a, a transition that had to take place. From him seeing a guy who he thought was a guy and realizing that that guy wasn't just a guy, that he was God. What does somebody have to do to convince you of that? Well, for John and for the other disciples, they saw Jesus beat something that ends all of our living our like biological living, but also like our living that we're talking about with love. What ends that living is death. I mean, when we have marriage, Christian marriage ceremonies say, till death do you part. And that's like thought out. Like that's not just a riff on the part of whatever pastor's doing that sermon. Like that's a well thought out theological statement. Something happens. Death is the place where love seems to end. And for all of human history and for so many of us on a, you know, hopefully not too regular basis, we see that happen. What John and the disciples saw with Jesus that made him go from being a guy to being something different in their understanding was that he saw death and then defeated it. They, they saw in Jesus' life and ministry, not just a person who taught, but a person who died and then got back up. <laughs> like, what would you then call that person when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And then they saw him die, and then they saw an empty tomb, and then they saw a risen Christ. They saw the life. They understood that this was somebody different, that this one is something different. And so when they started to understand, when they, they saw and they touched, they were not saw, seeing and touching and hearing this person who was just a person. They were actually seeing and touching and knowing a person who is God. Man, these are good guides. These are guys that we can follow. In the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels, we know that John himself saw the empty tomb and saw the risen Christ. And he can say on the authority of his life and he can seal with the authority of his death that this Jesus is the life. We can trust our good guides. There's a lot of other stuff we can trust. We're going to continue to build our confidence in different ways. But we can trust these disciples and what they saw. And trusting with them, we can tell others. And you're looking at your watch and me too. All right. Here's what it says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That's what they did and that's what we are going to do. And you, as you gain confidence in this thing, you are able to then see other people come to know him as well. That's what these baptisms represent. They don't represent somebody in the church winning because we have somehow brought somebody to Christ. They represent that person winning as they are now united directly to Christ. We can tell other people about it. And as we tell other people about it, look at that last thing in verse four. We have our joy made complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And as you're reading that, you go, who will, who's our? Because our is just the writer and one other person at one end, 
And it could be that. It could be a co-author that he's talking about. But I think it's very clear in the original language and it's clear from the writing here that what he's saying is that as we come to know him, then all those who come to know him will have joy that becomes complete. What does he mean? Well, in 3 John 1, 3 through 4, he says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers come and testify to your truth, as indeed we are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It is joyful to know that other people know the Lord. But, but what he's saying is what we've been talking about this entire time. That to experience complete joy is to be reconnected again to that original life. So do you know him? I want to be really heads up about the fact that the, the culture, our own internal forces and, and external spiritual forces are making it really hard to go through that tunnel to decide that he's right and you're going to follow him. But if you can put your eyes instead of on those things on him, then you can follow him. He's bigger. <laughs> he can make it through it and he can bring you too. So do you know him? Do you, do you trust him? I want to ask you to be careful about considering this series. I, I hope that you will come back to all of them. But if you do, please know that we're not just trying to make you nicer people. Like we're trying to actually connect you to this Jesus. And that if you do connect to him, it will be like taking up a cross and following him. That you will become an enemy of a lot of the things you used to love. And you'll go about your warfare in a Christian way. I mean, through love and sacrifice. But, but it will be warfare. And yet, man, as you consider the kind of love, the kind of life that love can give, as you consider the certainty of the judgment that is to come, I just ask you to think carefully. Do you know him? Because you can. John and Carmen are excellent people, but they're also just people. If they can come to know him, so can you. Those little white cards that are in every other chair. If you fill out one of those cards and drop it in the giving box, I'll get that card. And I will take it and, and contact you. And, and we can try to start a conversation about your situation with the Lord. If that's terrifying, sure. Just talk to the person that you know that maybe brought you today. If you're a believer and you say, no, 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 I don't need to talk about salvation or baptism. But I do need to talk about my confidence in the Lord. I'm open for that too. But also just keep coming back. And let's watch as God builds a happy, confident, joyful people. Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray these things because we trust that you're somebody who keeps your promises. Lord, if, if you say that we can have complete joy, then we trust that we can have complete joy and we want to seek it. If you say that you can bring us home, then we can trust that you will bring us home. We can go through this life and there will be a lot of tears. You, you promised that in this world we'll have troubles, but, but we can do it with rejoicing. When Paul in Philippians is constantly telling us to rejoice, he's not just telling us to buck up. And he's not just telling us to pretend like bad things aren't true. He's telling us to remember that our guide has gone before us. He's a good guide. And he's one that we can trust, Lord, that, that we can know you and we can be yours forever. I just pray for everybody in this room that you would give them a moment of a real evaluation. That if they know you, they would become confident. But if they don't, Father, we would be able to help them take their next step in understanding who you are. 
not in becoming some great moral person, not in becoming some great evangelist or leader, but just in understanding who you are, that in knowing you, they might have life more abundant. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.